Many people, in addition to having their vocation in life, have kind of a deeper mission, something that drives them, something that, that makes them get out of bed every day. And, and for my wife, that is yelling at other people's kids at public places, disciplining them when they get out of line. And, and I don't mean in a mean way, I mean in a way to protect the integrity of wherever we are. We were once at the zoo and there was someone throwing peanuts to the chimpanzees. Oh, she kiboshed that so fast. It was like 40-year-old man was like a little chastened child and kind of slinked away. Uh, one time we were at uh, the, the Van Andel Museum in Grand Rapids. They had this beautiful Egyptian display. And there was something on the wall and it said, do not touch. And there was plexiglass in front of it. And a kid went to reach up behind the plexiglass. And like a ninja, I didn't even see her arm move. It was just like, boom. And, and, and she didn't even think about it. The training kicked in, you know, and, and, and the kid's parents were like, oh, we feel dumb. We should have done that. I have it on good record that uh, Valerie Marvin actually reduced a child literally to dust while giving, just with a, with a look, while giving a tour of the Capitol because the kid leaned on a column painted to look like marble. Uh, and, you know, that, that is a, a problem these days. Because we have this hands-on, learning's got to be fun, curious George culture, and everyone thinks everything's interactive all the time. And so I, I read that in the, uh, the Pittsburgh Museum of History, there was a big issue with this. They had some very old things that weren't behind glass, and they had a sign that said, please do not touch, because it was old, ancient furniture and, and different uh, art and things. And, and, of course, you can touch it and soil it, and, and it breaks down. Uh, even the, the oils of your fingers can cause things to break down. And people were ignoring the signs. Even adults were touching everything. So they made bigger signs. Please do not touch. People kept on touching. Finally, I understand they solved the problem by putting up a big, scary-looking sign that said, Caution! Wash hands! after touching. And suddenly nobody wanted to touch. And you know, in the scriptures we're told that there are many commands, there are many laws and all these things. And Paul even says that the, the law is there to increase sin. And I didn't know what coveting was until the law said don't covet. Suddenly I'm wanting to covet. But for we who are believers who have been washed and are clean now because of the blood of Jesus... Perhaps better than just don't do this, don't do that, list of rules is a reminder. Caution. Don't touch these things. Touch no unclean thing, as the scripture says this morning. Don't have any interaction with the things of the old life, the old self, the, the, the ways of the flesh and the world, because you have been cleaned and you will then become dirty. There are consequences, and that's kind of where Paul goes in this passage. He begins with yet another famous Bible verse. 2 Corinthians is chock full of them. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now you, you're thinking Easter eggs and yokes and things, and that's not quite what's on his mind. The yoke, Y-O-K-E, would be used to uh, harness the oxen, to pull uh, the farming machinery. And normally there would be not one oxen, but, but two oxen that would be joined together and it would kind of look like a three on its side. And it would go over and around the necks of both and they together would pull your plow. And so that's the, the visual picture here. Two together joined together very closely. 
And, and Jesus used the idea of a yoke, of course, to talk about how the law was like a heavy yoke that crushed people. They couldn't walk under its weight. And he brought a light yoke, a, a, a light and free burden. But in this case, it's the double yoke that's in mind. To be unequally yoked then is to be hitched up or, or even mated. It became a euphemism for mating together multiple uh, different uh, breeds of animals and that sort of thing with another animal who's not the same. In fact, the unequally yoked, the, the Greek word here is heterozugeo, which means basically joining together different kinds. And this points all the way back to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. There are for the people of Israel many ceremonial laws that they kept as part of a picture of how God would have them be separate and holy. And among them, in Leviticus 19.19, we read, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. This is all reminders that they're seeing and using and wearing that they are to be a pure and separate people. Then in Deuteronomy 22, you shall not plow with an ox, an ox and a donkey together. All of a sudden now it's from Boston. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And, and of course, you think, what difference does it make? I mean, they don't get along or, or the donkey has to work too hard. No, again, this is part of the ceremonial law that is showing them. And, and it's applied in, in the Old Testament in that the people, the chosen people of God who follow him, who not just, that's the religion they check on the census, this is their whole lives is following their God, are not to intermarry with the heathen around them because their culture and their faith would then be compromised with another. The only way they could do that is if those on the outside came in and became part of Israel. In 1 Thessalonians, then, we see uh, that that, uh, we are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And when Paul says, what communion, what connection has light with darkness, he has this yoke thing in mind. Now, over the years, there have been all sorts of horrible ideas attached to this. Uh, racial ideas about intermarriage and that sort of thing, which, again, context, context, context. Learn to read the Bible before you try to apply the Bible. What is in view here is the idea that we are born again. As we saw last week, we are new creations. And if you take the yoke and put it on two people, the movement and direction of one of them must greatly influence the other. This is about spiritual condition. Now, primarily, this verse is trotted out these days, and the reason it's famous is because it's applied to marriage. A Christian should not marry a non-Christian. Now, there is a good reason for that, but that's not the primary context. In fact, most people who know just that verse, kind of swimming around in their mind, think, oh, that's a passage about marriage. But no, it's not. What's most clearly in view here? What's front and center? Paul is talking about how his opponents who here he now comes right out and says they're not believers, how they are being unequally yoked together with those who he had led to the true faith, to the gospel, to the cross of Jesus. And now, because when you're yoked together, you only can go in one direction together, they are being led astray. Now, of course, a a broad application can be made here, and it can include marriage. One's personal conduct and direction of life strongly is influenced by anyone that they are tightly connected with, that they are yoked together with. 
And as in the first century, the whole culture today, whether we're talking about marriage or personal ethics or or money or even how we think and talk about ourselves as people, are being turned anytime we clamp ourselves, clamp that yoke, us and the culture, and marry it together to make a happy, happy couple, we find ourselves being led astray. Tozer said it this way, religion today is not transforming people, rather it is being transformed by the people. It is not raising the moral level of society, it is descending to society's own level and congratulating itself that it has scored a victory because society is smilingly accepting its surrender. And that was many years ago. How much more true is this today? To make his point and to drive it home, Paul asks then four rhetorical questions. And the way that they are even worded, the grammar of the Greek, make it clear that the expected answer is nothing. And he begins here in verse 14. He says, What fellowship has light with darkness? Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, we are the children of light. What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And then he begins to quote from the Old Testament. So, Christians, again, are new creatures, new creations. And when he says, what fellowship have we, righteousness with lawlessness, he's saying, listen, you can't clamp together light and dark. right? Have you ever gone into a dark room, turned on the light, and said, huh, this room is perfectly divided between light and darkness, and they're both respecting the space of the other. No, light must push darkness out. And so if we're going to shine as a light to the world, we have to be free to shine. This idea that we as new creations must not be united to those who are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1, dead in trespasses and sins, is central to the idea of the Christian life. And it's how we apply those old ceremonial laws that we don't need to keep. Hebrews tells us they're obsolete now. You don't have to worry about how many different kinds of uh, uh, fabric are in your garment or eating shellfish or all these things. Those things have been fulfilled in Christ, but the concept remains that we are set apart for Him. He asks, what communion? What communion has light with darkness? That word koinonia, that might be one of the Greek words you've you've picked up over your Christian walk. It means a close relationship, as in marriage or a spiritual relationship with one's Creator. What accord has Christ with Belial? You know that word, Belial? That's an odd one. That's kind of out there. It's, it's uh, Greek, either Belial or Belier. It's uh, two, kind of a two-formed word. It's from a Hebrew term meaning worthlessness or destruction. And it is often used in the Judaism of Paul's day to describe Satan. Because it's, it's focusing on his, his characteristic of leading us into destruction, of giving us worthless ideas and occupying us with them and leading us astray. This sleight of hand that says, look at this thing of value, when really it's something worthless and something that will lead us away from the pearl of great price. What accord then? What accord has a believer with an unbeliever? That, That comes from a Greek word meaning literally to sound alike or to speak together. What what accord has Belial with Christ? 
Satan with Christ. Sometimes they do sound alike, right? For example, in the garden, the serpent was doing his best to sound like God. Oh, you shall not certainly die. You shall become like... And he's got all the answers. He's quoting God out in the wilderness when he's tempting Jesus. He's quoting God's word. And yet, there is no accord. There is no... I mean, think about it. If anything is is more opposite, it's Satan and God. Light and dark. Oil and water. These things do not mix. And yet they were trying to mix them together in Corinth and finding that the oil was displacing the water. The holiness and purity of Christ cannot be harmonized with the wickedness and filth of Satan. Again, that should seem self-evident, and yet they had been so snowed and so led astray in Corinth that they were trying to do just that. Paul had already tried to drop this same knowledge on them in 1 Corinthians 10 when he told them, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There, I said it twice, and still they didn't hear. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. There are a few different Greek words used for the temple in the the New Testament. And this one refers not to the more general temple complex or building, but rather to that inner sanctuary, what we call the most holy place. This would probably be something to write in the margin of your Bible if you do such things. This is where God's presence was manifested over the Ark of the Covenant in the inner sanctuary. Same word for temple that Paul used back in 1 Corinthians when he said, don't you know that you people are God's temple and God's Spirit lives in you? What an honor that is to be called God's temple. Israel is never equivocated with the temple. That's why they have the temple. This shows us just the amazing uh, privilege that we have as believers The idea that God dwells directly and immediately in us. And what connection has that, what what communion has that with idols? Well, over the course of the history of Israel, there have been times when the unholy and the holy have been brought together. And never with good results. We remember when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple of Dagon. Dagon, naturally, is uh, the fish god. And uh, the fish god fell down, like it was bowing to the ark, to, to the god of Israel. And the second time they picked it up, it fell down and its hands broke off. You know, how many times have you been like, oh, i got to glue the hands back on my fish god because I put it in the wrong... T-. But, but then we have other situations. Manasseh brings an Asherah, a, a false god, an a, a idol, into the temple, defiling the temple. We read about uh, Antiochus bringing in a pig and making an unclean sacrifice on the altar in the temple. That kind of thing defiles God's holy presence. And yet Paul says it's happening with you in Corinth because you are the temple. You are the temple. And what does God's holy temple have in common with idols? God says we are the temple. And then he begins to quote the Old Testament. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The fact that he dwells among us implies God's presence in us. 
and that he walks among us, his working in us and through us. Again, a privilege, but also a responsibility to remember that these temples must be kept pure and holy. And this passage is about holiness. And if you look in your Bible, probably you have something that looks something like this here, where everything's indented and maybe italicized, like poetry. And what we have when he says, as God has said, he he stitches together masterfully six different little snippets of the Old Testament to make one cohesive passage that makes his point about what God is calling us to do. Those of us who have been cleansed and who see the signs and say, do not touch, and eh, maybe we get in there. Maybe we'll yoke together with the world. Eh, maybe we'll go back to the old way of thinking and the old affections and the old motivations and desires. This chain of six Old Testament passages, three commands and three promises, it affirms that the Corinthian church is experiencing the fulfillment of the covenant that was first given to Israel, that that the promises made to Israel now are applied to we, the church. That's something to bear in mind while you read the Old Testament. They're fulfilled in Christ and apply then to us. The apostles show us how. But as he unfolds this, he says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Later, Jesus will say basically the same thing in Revelation 18. A passage about the religion of Babylon, which was rooted in in sexual immorality and passions and lust for power and lust for wealth. And and, and Jesus says, uh, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, And God has remembered her iniquities. When we read about holiness, Old Testament or New Testament, you could always sub in the word separateness. That's what holiness means. When we say someone's holier than thou, usually we're we're thinking self-righteousness. That's not what holiness is about. It's about being separate. And it's less about being separate from and more about being separate to. Separate to God. Separate to the one who created us and redeemed us. Separate to his glory. Separate for his use. To spread his name and his fame and his kingdom across the world. Holiness is separateness. Now here's the question. Last week we had this whole thing uh, about stumbling blocks. And I said one way that we have a stumbling block to the gospel for unbelievers is that we put ourselves in a bubble. And I said that often we don't know any unbelievers and and we're in this Christian bubble, this kind of self-imposed Christian ghetto situation where we have our own songs and our own everything and we don't have any effect. The light doesn't get out. And I said, pop the bubble. But how does that come together? How can you reconcile that idea with this idea? Holiness is separateness. Here's something that Jesus taught. He said, whoever is not against us, is for us. Here's something else that Jesus taught. He said, whoever is not for me is against me. Somebody might say Jesus contradicted himself, but no, look closer. If you're not for me, you're against me. That means that anyone who you say, where do you stand when it comes to Jesus? Do you believe in him? Do you put your faith in him? And they say, I don't know. 
I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about it much. I think I'm okay with God. I try to keep the Big Ten, you know, and I, I go to church once in a while with my parents when I'm home visiting and that kind of thing. But I, I don't know. If you're not for him, you're against him. Why? Because Jesus said that anyone who is not in Christ stands condemned already by their sins. So they're, already, they're, they're outside of Christ. Therefore, they're against him at enmity with God. But of those who have put their faith in him, of those, and this looks uh, very different in different parts of the world, even in different parts of the country, even in different parts of one city, even in different traditions on the same corner. But whoever has put their faith in him and received salvation, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, hey, they're not against us, they're for us. And so what we want to do is we want to embrace those who have put their faith in Jesus, We want to, like Jesus, be willing then to go out and tell the world and show the world that Jesus loves them. But Jesus warns and the apostles warn against those who would come in, false teachers. Those who would come in with another gospel. Those who would come in and say, well, yeah, sure, grace plays a part, but really, we have to earn salvation. Or, yeah, sure, God hates sin, but... Because of grace, we can live however we want, like the Galatians had started to believe. Those must be put out of our midst. We must come out of her, as Jesus says in the book of Revelation. We have to be careful about what self-described Christians we associate with. We need to embrace all of those who have put their faith in Jesus and all of those who believe on a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and have been baptized into His name and, and not say, oh, we have these little quibbles and differences. And so, no, we must embrace one another. That, that's largely what 1 Corinthians was about, saying, you are breaking into factions and I hate it. And yet, see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers, not not at all meaning them, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is that not inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside, therefore purge the evil person from among you. There's the idea that those who are outside of the church, we embrace, we love. We don't sit here like many self-righteous Christians with their signs saying, you should be ashamed of yourself for acting like you're not a Christian, even though you're not a Christian. And yet within the church, there must be purity. We must be careful not to be yoked together and led back into the old life. We are a new creation and have received newness of life. The sign ought to say, caution, do not touch. And remind us that it's because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he even says, stay with your unbelieving spouse if you can. If you're able to, you, you then can sanctify him or her. But in doing so, do not compromise your faith. Do not divide your loyalties. Again, this is less separate from all of those people and more separate to our God and Creator and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We see this on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes in. There's all sorts of, hey, everybody's on the same page. We're all waving our palm branches. Undoubtedly, some of those who on Friday will be shouting, crucify him, are shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, Jesus comes in, in the midst of tears, and goes into the temple and immediately cleanses it. Purges it of all the sin in the temple courts. All the money changers. All the swindlers and cheaters who had taken what should have been a house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. Even going so far as to take and make a a whip out of cords and drive the animals out. Because he recognizes that part of being separate for God is being separate from all of this unrighteousness. Jesus went and touched the leper rubbed shoulders, drank with the drunks. He went in and his feet were washed by the prostitutes, and yet he was separate. We've turned that into in the world, not of it, and it's a little too cute for me, but it's pretty biblically accurate. To be in the world, shining the light, but not defined by it and not yoked to it. Doing this, we're told, he will receive you, or perhaps translated, he will welcome you. As one who was formerly with the enemy, but now is not only I will be your God and you will be my people, as he said in verse 16, but I will be your father and you will be sons and daughters to me. This intimate connection. David Brown on this passage writes, The Lord will gather you up as a general brings up the rear of his army, not suffering one straggler to be lost. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be your father, you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And that's an important thing. The greatness of the one making the promise enhances the greatness of the promise. We know he will keep it. It is always within his power. And he ends in verse 1 of chapter 7, which ought to go with chapter 6. It's it's the, the conclusion of this thought. He writes, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What a beautiful summary of all that he's said so far. Since we have these promises, going all the way back to the Old Testament, but applying to us even today in the church age. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. This, he has in mind certainly fornication, which was very prevalent at Corinth. We've seen through both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But holiness involves purification of all aspects of life. The outward, what you do with your physical body, as well as purity in your mind and your heart and your spirit, affecting your innermost thoughts and desires. Let us cleanse ourselves, bringing a holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or perfecting holiness. That's in, the, that's in the present ongoing tense. This is a process. This takes our whole lives. It, it, perfecting holiness is not something you do in a weekend. There, I've perfected it now. It's perfect. It's something we're always working toward. But when we stop perfecting it, that's when we become yoked together with unbelievers. That's when suddenly light and darkness are trying to coexist. And the idols are dragged into the holy temple. I will be your God and you will be my people, says the Lord God Almighty. Holiness involves purification and the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And we fear God so that we can love Him without fear. And that conclusion about perfecting holiness emphasizes the fact that not so much we will never quit on Him, but He will never quit on us. And the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it through to completion. It is not enough to begin. And in the Christian world, we have overemphasized the beginning. Everybody's story ends with, and then I believed in Jesus. The end. Implication, smooth sailing from there. Happy ever after. All was fine. No, that's the beginning of the story, not the end. All that came before was just prologue. And now I believe in Jesus, and now he is at work in me. And what matters most is not how it begins, but the end crowns the work. As Paul wrote in Galatians, Are you Galatians so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the rules? In Revelation, it's Jesus makes these promises again and again and again to him who overcomes, who perseveres to the end. We know that if our faith in him is truly saving faith, it won't be a little flash in the pan. It won't be a chapter in our life. We'll look back and go, oh, there over there was when I was kind of into Jesus for a while. I kind of went to the wayside. I still believe sort of, but I'm not in that Jesus phase anymore. No, rather, true saving faith will push us to more and more day by day, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit to perfect our faith in holiness and the fear of God, to trust Him just as Christ went into that temple and purged out all that did not belong to come into this temple and purge out all that does not belong. Palm Sunday for Jesus was an emotional roller coaster. Cheers and laughter Tears over Jerusalem, anger in the temple courts. But at the end of the day, God's will had been done. And as we go into Holy Week, there is an emotional roller coaster. We are so happy at what God did for us. And yet we are so somber on Monday, Thursday, when we think about what happened on that night when Jesus was betrayed. And so heartbroken on Good Friday, when we think about what happened when he was beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross for our sin. And then again, so full of joy on Easter morning. Well, this mirrors for us the Christian life, grieved by our sin, purified by the blood of Jesus, celebrating that we have been saved and that He is not done with us and He will see that work through to completion. And repeat, do not let your faith become stagnant. Remember, you are the body. You are the temple. You are where God is not only dwelling, but walking and working. And He is the most holy God. He is a God who deserves to live and walk and dwell where there is no uncleanness. And He will be loved and He will be feared. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us such great privileges as being the temple, the inner sanctuary where You dwell in your fullness. And Lord, we pray we would not take that lightly. That we would remember that that we cannot be yoked together with darkness, that it simply does not work. That we will be drawn astray, we will be darkened, we will be stained. And Lord, when that happens, we thank you that we have a promise that having sinned, we can confess our sins, knowing you will be faithful and just to forgive us. And give us a new chance on a new day where your mercies are new every morning. 
We thank you that you walk alongside us, dwelling with us, walking with us, walking slow when we stumble, helping us up, taking us by the hand and leading us every step along the way. Lord, we pray that this would be the story of each of us and of our church here in Lansing as we go out and as we trust that greater things are yet to be done in this city, in your name, Even here on the corner of Glendale and Cedar Street, we know that you are God. And we pray, Lord, that we would be your people. In your holy name we pray. Amen.